You're listening to Version Control, Pounding Grain's digital news podcast. What do you get when you combine strategic thinking, Texas, and roller skates? You get our next guest on the hot seat, Katie Snell. A much-loved, much-missed veteran of Pounding Rain, Katie Snell is an incredibly talented strategist at Juliet Creative. Eclectic is one word for her, but she's just as smart as she is fun, always searching to understand the deeper meaning, the why, the how-can-it-be-better answer to, well, everything. Today, she has taken time out of her busy schedule to chat with us about strategy, digital marketing, trends, and of course, all things roller derby. Version Control presents The Hot Seat, featuring Katie Snell. So how are things going at Juliet Creative? Uh, really well. Yeah, it's been good. We're also um, a small and even newer agency, which is fun. I think I kind of fell in love with that when I started working at Pound & Grain, having previously worked at bigger agencies. Um, so it's fun. We're doing different things all the time, growing all the time. It's been a good experience so far. Cool. Yeah, that was kind of like me when I started at Pounding Grain. We were only six people. So it's definitely exciting being part of an agency that's growing and constantly changing and every day is something new. So I can totally see that. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you, I mean, I personally don't know and I am interested and I'm sure others that are listening don't know, but what's been your kind of journey to where you are today? Like we know you were at Pounding Grain before that, but what about before, before Pounding Grain? I mean, like, the really short answer for how I got into this industry is nepotism. <laughs> um, but to elaborate a little bit, so my, my dad does work in advertising, which is obviously how I got to know it as a thing that people can do as jobs. <laughs> and my, like, joke that I say is that I tried really hard to, like, not be the same, and it just didn't work. Um, but, Classic. <laughs> like, the, the sort of short story is that I... Um, I was into like art and history and all these social science kind of things as a kid. So my dad was obviously knew that that's something that could be applied in this sort of way. So um, I studied psychology and then I got into like basically like social science research after that, which like was was really what led me into actually considering advertising in a real way because it it's i mean the whole idea is like how do you answer or quantify things that are like by definition not quantifiable like what will make people do this or make them like this or why do people behave in this way that doesn't make sense um so after doing that in like a more academic way i uh got a job at the richards group which is an agency in dallas texas um which i was very fortunate to get because I mean, just it's a huge agency in the U.S. They're like 800 people or something like that there. So they have a very robust strategy program. You can get internships as a strategist, which in smaller markets like Toronto isn't even really a thing. Uh, so I was kind of lucky to have started there so that by the time I was moving to Toronto after finishing university, um, I kind of had already had that experience, which unfortunately there's not that many training opportunities for people who are strategists and the cards just kind of fell right. And I, I got kind of lucky in that respect. Um, but after working um, at JWT in Toronto for a few years, which is where I kind of, it was like my crash course in the industry of working at a big client at a big agency and seeing kind of how everything is done and what different departments mean and that kind of thing that after that I joined Pound and Grain. I was here for about a year. And then since then I've been at Juliet. 
do you find, you know, you said you take sort of, or wanted to get into this industry for sort of that anthropological approach to see, you know, how humans tick. Uh, do you think you still take that approach as a strategist or is that something that's sort of gone by the wayside as other techniques have come up? It's definitely still a part of it. Um, and I think to lose that part of it would be like a real shame. Um, because like at the end of the day, the job is to get a client to like want to buy into something that is inherently risky. Like you're saying that like this is a future that you can get to and we're, it's imagined. It's not real yet. There's no fact or number that tells you that that's going to be the truth. And you have to like work back from that uh, a strategy or an approach that ends in creativity. Like none of those things are numeric. So like you have to be able to kind of um, put the sort of rationale together for something that is more complicated than one plus one equals. Yeah. I get to like live a double life in a way of like, you know, you're, you're at like the table with clients talking about like business and their financial numbers that they need to get to and like wearing that hat. But then at the same time, being the translator who then gets to look at cool ideas and what are different ways that we could solve that problem in a way that's never been done before. So I, I think, I mean, going back to your earlier question of like, why did I end up in advertising? I think I also realized at an early age that I like art and those kinds of things, but I like thinking about it more than I like doing it. <laughs> so I get to kind of like do that role where it's like, I'm still involved in a world that's more fun and more interesting, but I get to like wear this sort of logical problem solving hat at the same time. And I'm curious how, because you've kind of been around the board of big agency, small agency, digital agency, um, and you've been in strategy since the beginning. So how has your role in strategy changed across like those different agency dynamics? It's hard because like, I mean, strategy is like a very broad word um, <laughs> and it gets misused for the same reason. And really it's like any number of clients that you work with have like lots of different kinds of problems to solve. Like they have like really big ones, like is my business relevant? and strategy can help you solve that problem. And then they have really small ones, like we did this last year, how can we get it to be 1% better? Um, and so I think throughout my career, I've had lots of opportunities to go everywhere in between. And I think when I was here or doing a digital agency strategy role, it was more of clients saying, we have this thing and it's kind of working, but we need it to be better. And you're being more rational about, okay, you could, you could get 5% if you did this differently, um, which is super valuable because it's hard to answer the big questions if you haven't already had experience answering the smaller ones. Well put. So what's going on in the, in the industry that you're excited about? I have kind of a, a cop out of an answer to that question, but I'm gonna go with it anyways. Um, like, I, I am actually very excited about the fact that advertising is so maximally annoying right now. <laughs> like, truly, it's everywhere. I don't think any time in, like, the history of advertising, if you walk up to, like, a stranger and you're like, hey, if I had these cool bracelets and I wanted to sell them, what would I do? And they'd be like, Instagram ads, put it on YouTube. Like, everyone goes right to, like, advertising. And there's just so much everywhere all the time. People are annoyed with it. But I'm excited about that because I think with like the swing towards that, there will be like a natural correction, which means like clients thinking maybe I shouldn't just t-shirt gun these messages out into the world and hope something happens. Like maybe I should hold on to this for a little bit longer and wait till I have something that's really exciting to say and then hire people like us to do it in a way that's more interesting than the obvious. 
Um, and I think that's already starting to happen, but it will only start to happen more. Can you think of a brand that has sort of held off and then just dropped the hammer in that respect? Like you think of a uh, brand like Burger King that was probably like sustaining itself off of like coupons and DMs and mailers and like get two for ones for years. And like, there were probably a lot of people inside of that organization that were like, cool, keep that. Let's keep doing that. Um, but then they came in and were like, you know, we're losing. We don't have a better product by any like rational sense. So we have to like behave differently and we have to get people in to want our product for a completely different reason that is less rational than two for one. Uh, and it makes you behave differently. I'm sure there are better examples than that one, but that's one. No, that's, that's a good example because when, when I think of Burger King, marketing in my mind. I do think of fun stunts. I think of things that make me laugh. I think of the different, you know, things that they've done that are just purely entertaining. And that's what counts now, especially when we're being bombarded by ads everywhere. When you can create it in a way that it's also entertaining or engaging and it's not just an ad to be an ad. It's something that people actually want to watch and spend time looking at. And you're doing it right. Yeah, like in a lot of ways, the skip the skip ad button was like the best thing that could ever happen to our industry, if you think about it that way. We've uh, beat around the bush a little bit, talking about <laughs> strategy and, and digital agencies and agency life. But the question that I think everyone wants to know is, number one, how did you discover roller derby? And number two, <laughs> what's the backstory behind your nickname? A natural segue, really. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I discovered it... So I went to university in Guelph and I was figure skating at the time. And figure skating is not a thing that people do as adults, or if they do, I would question them <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, Why? It's just like, I don't know, I like competing. Like obviously you can like skate around for fun, but like if somebody came up to me as like a 40 year old person was like, I compete at figure skating, I'd be like, I mean, this, this is coming from somebody who plays roller derby. So I should probably just shut up now. <laughs> um, <laughs> But so I knew full well that I would be like quitting doing that. And then some people, coworkers that I worked with when I was in Guelph, just like a dumb part-time job kind of thing, played roller derby. Um, so I signed up without even like seeing a game. I was like skating, cool people. Yeah, sounds good. And then I don't think I quite realized what I was getting into until I was like most of the way in. Um, but I've just sort of kept doing it ever since. And to be honest, it came at a good time in my life because I was moving to Toronto and I didn't really know anyone. And like, no offense to agency people, but I don't want like all of my friends in the world to be people who I work with. And that was my only other like sort of community in Toronto. So it was good for that purpose. You're also very associated with Black Lab Beer, right? Yep, yep. You wanna tell us why? Quite associated. (laughs) So Black Lab Brewing, my partner is the brewer there. Um, They've been around since like October of last year, Um, which which is fun as well. Like, I mean, fun because it's nice to have a partner who has nothing to do with this industry so we can talk about other things and beer of all things to have to talk about which is great um but also it's cool to just see like a small business kind of starting from the ground up and be like i'm not involved very personally in it or like you know financially in it in any way but you know they're very open to my perspective as a marketing person and I get to kind of be an observer as this thing is happening and people are grabbing onto it for whatever reason culturally that they want to and that's kind of learning in itself. Well that's kind of what I was going to ask actually. I mean when you're talking about roller derby or you know black lab are you able to turn off the marketing person or <laughs> are you always looking at those things and seeing where you could you know promote them how they could be better uh, recognized? 
and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think the benefit of being a marketing person is that you're a people person at the end of the day. Like it is, it's it's just like, how, do, how can I make, I think this thing is great. I think roller derby is great. I think Black Lab Brewing is great. Wouldn't it be great if other people thought that too? How do we sort of make that interesting? Um, so it's, it doesn't feel like it's like getting in the way or like annoying my work self is sort of coming home with me. It, it feels more natural to that. Where's it located? And like, what's the name behind it? Black Lab? Yeah. So Black Lab Brewing is at Leslie and Eastern in Toronto. Definitely check it out. Dog Friendly Brewery. That's part of the, you know, obviously the reason behind the name Black Lab Brewing. Um, also just kind of this lab connotation of a place where they're making interesting things. Um, but they've been quite successful because I think there is really a market for people who want to hang out with their dogs in Toronto and can't do that because, you know, it's annoying to get around with one and there aren't places where you can bring it. So that's been a huge draw for them. So Connor, who's my partner, was the one who like pitched the name Black Lab. But like when he was just homebrewing, he, I don't know, he, like he had Black Labs growing up and the, the owners of the business um, who are Billy and Ann Madden, um, they have Black Labs as well. And they have a Black Lab named Snoopy, who's the sort Aww. of like mascot of Black Lab Love brewing. It. Um, and so they kind of liked the, the name for that reason. And just this connotation of like, we want people to come here to hang out with their dogs and drink great beer. That's kind of like a, a whole sort of attitudinal segment in itself, if you want to bring it back to marketing terms. Um, and they saw that kind of crossover and the need for something like that in Toronto. So if a uh, company about the size of Black Lab, not Black Lab specifically, came to you and said, we want to really blow up in the online community in a market like Toronto? What's the first step? Oof. Um, that's a good, I mean, it's a good question because there's a, there's a hundred different ways at that. Uh, like there really is. Um, for, for them, they knew that they had this hook in being dog friendly and they knew that that would draw people in, not just from the neighborhood, but from other places in Toronto. So they just called up make get ctv at your door get blog to showing up get influencers there's so many dog like how many people have an instagram handle for their dog so many people <laughs> invite them shout out to satchmo yeah <laughs> so they knew that that was like an angle and they did little smart things inside like they have a an illustration that's on the wall that lots of people want to take pictures in front of as soon as you have something like that then you're kind of getting these things naturally because like the truth of the matter is uh, I and we primarily work with companies who have budget for marketing. When you've just invested thousands of dollars in building a brewery, you're not about to like go do some Instagram ads. That doesn't make sense. That's not the best way that you can do it. Totally. But there's so many um, small businesses that I've seen in that similar position that they don't consider their advertising dollars at all until it's too late. Um, yeah, every, all the money goes into the infrastructure and nothing is considered past that. And then yeah. that seems like a mistake. But. Totally. And, and I feel like if I would tell them, you know, if they had $1 to spend where to spend it, it would be like on the design. So the design of like logos, packaging, the, the experience of it and make sure that's really cohesive. Get someone who is very visually smart and interesting to like really own that for you, especially if you're a business that doesn't have that skill set in-house. A lot of people who are designers go on to create businesses and that's amazing. You're saving yourself a lot of work and a lot of money by doing that. But if you don't have it, don't be afraid to spend money there because it makes a difference. So do you think if the visuals are super hot, then everything else will naturally fall into place organically? Um, 
mean, not necessarily, but I think like we're such visual people that if the visuals of a place are really cohesive, it helps you to understand the thing without having to put words to it. I mean, like our jobs really in a lot of ways, or especially as a strategist or as a designer is like to put words and visuals to something that people intuitively get, but have a hard time explaining. Um, so it shouldn't feel like you're blowing somebody's mind when you're sort of summarizing what a brand is visually or, or as a strategy. Instead, it should feel like, oh, that fits really just right. So I, but it, so I do think the more cohesive your look is or your design is, the more people will understand it without having to explain it. I think it's also about balance though, right? Because there's so many new small companies or little entrepreneurs who are starting up some kind of startup and it's branded beautifully. So it gets people in the doors at the beginning, but then there's maybe nothing like not a differentiating factor to keep people coming back or they don't, you know, they prioritize that over stocking things or having the employees trained right. And I've seen that go That's super fair. Yeah. Go wrong too. So I think uh, it's also about your environment. Like in Toronto, it seems like a lot of new businesses know that branding is a priority because they're surrounded by it. They're surrounded by other people doing it right. But when you uh, when you go a little bit further out to the GTA and to the suburbs and stuff and you see small businesses failing and you see their horrible topography on the <laughs> signage, it makes you cringe. But it's just because I guess it's not what they're surrounded by or used to. Yeah, and I think like your point earlier about like so many businesses are like, I'm going to have this like, you know, millennial pink background and like a, you know, a neon sign and say like, I'm of this cool new brand. Like, yes, that's designed beautifully or aesthetically nice, but it's not like a visual idea. So Nick, your earlier point about like, do you think design makes it easier to explain what you are as a business? If you're just making a beautiful, no. But if you're like conveying an idea that's interesting through your packaging and different, like, through your packaging, through the way that your store is designed, through your labels and stuff, then it's a different story. If Scott was here, he would probably bring up uh, Milk because he he got to listen to the creator at a conference he was recently at and he's like obsessed with that brand, but they do it well. They're a perfect example. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we were talking from the ground up, but as a wish list, is there any brand that you would love to work with and or brands? It's funny that you asked that question because I remember at my first internship in advertising, they did this thing where, because I was a strategy intern, I had to meet every senior strategist in the agency and have like a little meeting, which at a big agency like the Richards Group is a ton of people. Um, and I asked every single one of them, I, I was like, what's your dream brand to work on? And all of them were like, meh, I don't know. <laughs> or like, what's your favorite brand to work on? And they're like, I really like this fertilizer company. And I was like, what? How do you like the fertilizer company? Probably like, <laughs> at that stage, probably they're just easy to deal with. So we're like, yeah. Exactly. Or they're nice yeah. people. Yeah. They're nice people. It's like, I get to sit across the table with people who are nice and reasonable and smart and they make my everyday life interesting. It doesn't matter if we're selling fertilizer or something that is like, you know, about the greater good or about something that I'm really personally interested in. And I, I do think that that's true. To be honest, as a strategist, fun, cool brands aren't that fun to work with. Like mm-hmm. if Nike came to me and was like, do a campaign, I'd be like, your strategy is good already. That's true. Like I'm not solving a problem for yeah. you. I'm just defending what you already have, which isn't like actually a very good problem to solve. I would love to get like 
you know. Blockbuster? <laughs> Huge problem to solve. Yeah. That, that's too big of a problem. Okay. Let's not go to that end of the spectrum. But it is fun to work with, like, the brand that is number two. And they're like, oh, I really, I, this is the time. We have some money. We have some momentum. We need to take risks. That's the most fun opportunity as a strategist. And that can be in lots of different categories. So if you're talking to someone who's fresh out of school, what's one word of advice? Young upstart that's fresh out of school. I mean... So basically me. Is that, is that what <laughs> yeah, in strategy, though. I mean, you might end up there. Who knows? Yeah. Um, which I think is part of my advice. Where, like, I had, like, the weird fortune of being able to get a job in strategy right from school. And especially in Toronto, like, that simply doesn't exist. But, like, that doesn't mean that you will not end up in this industry. I think the best, like, strategy is, by definition, like, uh, being able to, like, extrapolate and look at the bigger picture of lots of smaller decisions. So if you get lots of experience doing smaller decisions that are interesting, like not even just the obvious ones, like working in marketing or, you know, being a data person or being, you know, a writer or something like get lots of varied different experience and you'll find yourself becoming more strategic over time just naturally. Um, And I think our industry is really drawn to people who have weird experience. Like nobody is like sitting at the other end of the table being like, please give me the best textbook resume. Yes, I'll, I'll hire you. Like we all know better than to do that. So um, there's, there are lots of ways at it. Um, but I think if you're like always solving different kinds of problems, your value will become obvious to an agency at some point. I remember when uh, you were working here, something that I picked up right away was that you are naturally very, very creative and you infuse that with your strategic thinking and like all of the knowledge that you have. And I remember chatting you and I one time about um, how strategy, strategists have to be creative and those are just often the best ones. Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Like what, why does creativity, why is it so important to strategists? And then like maybe like another, another strategist who's very like is there is there a harm in being too strategic like when is there room to be creative (laughs) definitely you know what I mean you can definitely get too into the strategery of the whole thing (laughs) yeah yeah and it happens all the time and 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 really like it's it's like turning making a problem too academic is like the problem and you know I find myself falling into that trap sometimes I work with clients who fall into that trap where you try to like overanalyze what are the different ways that we could do this thing and try to make it really rational um when at the end of the day, there's like, you get attention by doing something new for the first time or doing something in a different way than people thought or showing up kind of in a surprising place or helping them do something, uh, which is where I think you always have to take like a bit of a leap of faith. Also, to, like to be honest, most of the clients I've ever worked with are very strategic people. So if I was the same type of strategist as them, I wouldn't be that useful to an agency because they're already briefing us and they're already telling you, I need to get 2% more of this by, and that means 50,000 more people to come into my store. And that means those people are going to be people like this. They already know those answers. So you have to be able to take that and think about it in a different way. Absolutely. And also at some point, somebody might ask you to be on a podcast. So (laughs) being being able to think creatively on the spot with your answers is probably a big help. It also just helps like, frankly, creative people. And like, I have a lot of respect for people who are creative or have creative roles because it's hard. Like somebody, 
use the analogy. This is probably like a super boring analogy and I just heard it for the first time, but they were like, it's like being like a gold miner. You can like dig forever and then be like, nope, it's not here. Let me just keep going in this other direction. And it's grueling, like it's hard work. So I think part of it is like just the emotional side of being a strategist and, and trying to force yourself to also be creative is that like that helps you build with respect with the person who at the end of the day is responsible for the product that we're selling. Like you, you can't just kind of toss a brief over to them on the other side of the table and expect them to figure it out. Totally. What have you been reading lately? What have you been watching lately? And I would say marketing related is great, but anything you got. Okay. Usually this question would intimidate me, but I actually have a really good answer for what I'm reading. (laughs) So I'm pumped that you asked me this. Um, so I'm reading, and, and to be honest, I haven't read a book that's related to work in like years. So this is kind of like the first time, but it's totally worth it. It's this book called The Third Pillar, and it's written by a guy who's an Indian economist who predicted the financial crisis, and everyone was like, ha, you're joking, and like didn't take him seriously. And then afterwards, obviously, he got like really famous and got some big jobs, you know, in dealing with the economy. Um, But his book is basically like, so what are the next problems of capitalism that we should be worried about? And his whole point is that like the third pillar is community. So if there's the economy, the government, and like the economy, economists typically focus on those two factors, like what is the market doing in the free market and as well as regulations around that market, instead of paying attention to the community and how transactions happen naturally there. So like, if I'm your friend, I'm gonna help you and it's not a financial transaction, but if you're thinking about the impact of that relationship on like the larger GDP or how this community functions, that's huge. So like, why aren't we paying more attention to that and helping it fill in the gaps where like the market and the economy can't naturally step in. So looking at all these problems of like, city, like whole cities where like industry is gone and people are like, it's just become like so toxic because like nobody's sort of stepping in and like focusing on some of those things. Um, Don't we have a macro community based on the yeah. internet? I mean, yeah. And like utilizing like all of that. And like there are, there are different ways of thinking about like basically how the economy, like the economic system should work. That's like ignoring a lot of like human factors just because, you know, they don't make dollars and cents, I guess. Um, but it's super interesting for a lot of reasons. Also just because it's like, you know, it's economics, it's history, it's like anthropology all at the same time, which is like super relevant to kind of what strategy is. And it's, and it's taking this, this thing that is like not, it's making something that is not quantifiable, quantifiable. So he's like literally proving that like this will make financial dollars if we pay more attention to like the way people interact with communities, which is like that's the epitome of like taking an unsolvable problem and like trying to solve yeah. it. Nice. Crazy. The author was also on a Freakonomics podcast recently, so you can probably just find it uh, based on that. Should have known that you'd be reading something super smart. <laughs> you weren't just reading like the new Tom Clancy or something like that. I mean, I also watch a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race, so like there's that. Hey, that's pretty smart too. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fun time. I got into that when we were working on OTV here, mm-hmm. and I have not stopped. I'm just like, it's my guilty pleasure obsession. Follow them all on Instagram. It's like my other life. Thanks for listening to Version Control, the hot seat featuring Katie Snell. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate us on iTunes. 